I thought in my sermon this morning I, I would say some things about the revised common lectionary and the benefits that we receive from using the revised common lectionary and then to preach on each of the readings from Genesis, from Paul's letter to the Romans, and from Matthew's Gospel. About 15 or 20, nearly 20 years ago, the General Convention of the Episcopal Church passed a resolution adopting the Revised Common Lectionary. And the reason that was a positive step uh, are numerous, but I'm going to speak about a couple of them. One was this lectionary is the one that is used by most of the mainline churches in this country today. And in fact, also, uh, the Roman Catholic Church in their lectionary for Mass uh, is about 80 to 85 percent the same as the Revised Common Lectionary. And one of the things that the RCL does uh, in, in the readings that we hear on Sunday is that they've brought new voices into the biblical readings that were not in them before. So we hear about somebody that was not in the old lectionaries uh, today from Genesis, and that's Rebecca, one of the great matriarchs of uh, the, the story of the people of Israel. And we will meet more of them as we move forward. So it sort of uh, reminds us that we have the great patriarchs. We know who they are, but there were a number of great matriarchs as well that we will meet as we read their stories in the Hebrew Bible moving forward. And the same will be true in the Christian scriptures in the New Testament, um, other voices that were not there before. So it is uh, an advantageous thing. I just should remind you of this as well. If you uh, came to church every Sunday and listened to the readings that uh, we have on Sunday, and you read morning and evening prayer every day, by the end of the year you would have read about 85% of the Bible. So I just merely mention that as a commercial message and a reminder that the Episcopalians really do care about the Bible, right? There's a lot of Bible in, in, in what we do. So in Genesis, we're going to read from Genesis now through August, and we're now in the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Esau and Jacob, and we're going to be reading all of those in course over the next few weeks. And today we meet Rebecca. After the 9 o'clock liturgy, the only comment somebody made to me before I preached my sermon was they were appalled that they put a ring in her nose. <laughs> it says to me that piercing has had a venerable tradition over the ages, right? But we, it's hard to get past it for some. You know, that's one of the issues with post-modernity. Uh, it's very hard for people to understand that in a former age, things were different. And they may be absolutely repugnant to us, but there they are. So how do we make sense of that in the middle of this? Because there is some aspect in this story about Rebecca's obedience. Now, by the way, we read about the, the servant, Abraham's servant, who comes and he begins to speak uh, on behalf of Abraham that he wants to find a wife, but not with the Canaanite people. Abraham was a Canaanite. 
And so this guy comes and Rebecca uh, shows up on the scene. He was not just some minion. He was the steward of all of Abraham's stuff. He was the big cheese. So he's a person of some weight. And he comes and finds Rebecca. And at the point that's important in the story, he says, will you go? And she says, I will go. I will go. In spite of the uncertainties and the ambiguities uh, that are in front of her, she becomes an essential link in the transmission of the divine promises of God. Now, one of the things in this story that's important is that Rebecca is going to receive God's blessing, and she's an ex example of a human being who moves toward the blessing and not away from it. So it's instructive because a lot of times we don't move towards the blessing and we move away from it. And she's an example of someone uh, who did not do that. It would be poor exegesis, but I'm sure in some of the writings of the early church fathers and of the medieval theologians, uh, there are echoes in this story of Mary's, of the Annunciation story her obedience uh, to God. So we move from Rebecca's obedience, moving towards the blessing, to now Paul in a somewhat tortured passage about something that all human beings face on a daily basis. Just to confuse you even more, there's a lot of new writing about Paul and the letter to the, Paul's letter to the Romans and this passage for Paul has to do with how he understands keeping the law or not keeping the law and Torah and what that means and what he's going to suggest to other people. But the most useful thing for us in this day and age is to say, I'm perfectly aware of my conflicted motives for my, and my desire to do the right thing and then I end up not doing the right thing. I don't know uh, what, what's going on with me in terms of my interior emotional, spiritual, and mental states. How do I understand doing the right thing and what it means? And then I don't do the right thing. There's something going on. Just stepping away for that for a moment, I'm not going to talk a lot about this now, uh, and I, but I will over the next several weeks or the rest of this uh, year A. And that is the problem of evil. I'm reading a book by a man named Andrew Del Banco called The Disappearance of Satan. In the introduction to the book, Del Banco speaks uh, about himself and says, I am a secular liberal. I have no religious commitments of any kind. But it has become clear that over the last uh, long time, maybe since uh, uh, the 18th century, it is not possible for us to use a personalized vocabulary of evil or to talk about evil as a force in the creation that is real. And what he uses in his introduction is to talk about the book, The Silence of the Lambs. 
And he describes the story in the book of Jodie Foster, agent, whatever her name was in the movie, going to see Hannibal Lecter, who's in a cage with a mask on. And as she approaches him, she turns to one of her colleagues and she says, what happened to that guy? What must have happened to that guy that he would do these things? And he heard her. And he stood up and he said, "Uh, Officer so-and-so, nothing happened to me. I happened. You've got everybody wearing moral dignity pants. Can you just finally stand there and see or say that I am pure evil? You see, we've believed for so long in Western culture that everything has to have a material cause. So Hitler gets explained because his father used to beat him regularly. Well, killing six million Jews simply is not an explanation because you've been beaten. It will not do. It is wearing thin. And there's got to be something bigger than this operating uh, in the cosmos. And so we may want to revisit this uh, at some time, not to get thinking about superstition or the lack of importance of... uh, Uh, issues that uh, produce certain behaviors as the result of our experiences. But at the same time, it's important to know that we need to think about what intellectual language are we going to be able to use to explain this beyond merely a material cause. It's much bigger than that. And maybe to some extent that's what Paul Uh, has recognized. He's recognized it himself. Here's what's happened here for Paul. You know, I said this in Episcopalian 101. Our worldview is not something that we look at. It's something that we look through, like your glasses. So when you are looking through your worldview, and our worldview isn't only self-created, it's created by our culture, it's created by uh, the history, uh, who we are as Americans or not Americans, how we understand reality. And when Paul had his experience on the road to Damascus, his worldview was shattered. He stepped on his glasses. He was struck blind. And now Paul uh, said, I have to reconstruct my worldview. I have to put my glasses back together. And I've got to see differently because I have had an experience that has turned my worldview upside down. And one of the things that he was concerned about was, how do I, as a pious, observant Jew understand what has happened to me 
and how Jesus has influenced me to such a degree that I now can say the thing that I've done for so long is not necessary for everybody to do. I have to do something else myself. So he begins to say, I have a message for my fellow Jews, a worldview that I am going to give you, and I have a worldview for the Gentiles, because the Gentiles are in on this now too. And there's some things they've got to do, which is one thing, to believe in Christ. If you believe in Christ, you're in. You're not in if you keep the law. You can keep it if you want to, but you're not in because of that. You're in because of belief in Christ. So the Jews are in because of belief in Christ, and the Gentiles are in because of belief in Christ. And so what we have to do now is find the ways and the means to participate in Christ as we live, both personally, internally, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, and in community, and how we understand what that might mean. So Paul is on to something big, even though sometimes it seems very difficult to understand. And no, it doesn't help in this case, if you read it in the original. <laughs> it's still pretty <laughs> twisted up, right, in some ways. So think about how we need to understand our motives and what they mean and uh, acknowledge this. When I was in seminary and I was taught a lot of old now old-fashioned things about Western spirituality and how to say your prayers and so forth, one of the things that was talked about uh, is... Um, is something called scrupulosity. Scrupulosity is a sin. And so when Paul is struggling with uh, wanting to do the right thing, a lot of people have the tendency to achieve a certain species of perfection in the practice of their religious life that is simply unattainable. And so we have to learn some ways to uh, balance the idea of what it means to uh, be concerned about our motives and to do the right thing, you know? This is true both personally for us and in our relationship. One of the hardest things that people uh, have to struggle with, in my opinion, is that you can't will change in others. It's not possible to do it. So how do you live effectively and, um, you know, serenely in the midst of that knowledge? You can't will change in others. Edwin Friedman, one of my heroes, used to talk about evil, and sometimes he referred to it as perversity. There's a lot of perversity in the world, and sometimes we need to come, come clean with just perversity and what it might mean as part of the mix. The reading from the gospel uh, is hard also to interpret. Uh, the first part of it has uh, a good line which says that uh, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. And he's speaking at the beginning probably about his opponents and people who have uh, criticized his uh, ministry and the things that he said. But that's sort of one piece of material. And the bottom rest of the gospel for today sounds an awful lot like John, like John's gospel. 
In fact, some biblical scholars have called it the synoptic thunderbolt in the Johannine sky. Put that on ice. That'll amaze your friends. Because it's a lot about stuff that John talks about, participation, uh, doing the Father's will, doing all of this. And it affords the opportunity to reinforce something I've been saying a lot often uh, these days. The Gospels, Paul's letters... And in fact, the Hebrew Bible were all written and read to people who were primarily illiterate. They could not read. And so they were written a certain way. First of all, let me step back for a moment and say illiterate people aren't stupid. They're not stupid. There's a lot of the world that's illiterate. And amongst that population, you will find people of enormous wisdom. And they've learned the the wisdom through their memory. You and I have comparatively lousy memories because we know how to read and write. But if you don't, you have to learn to really rely on your memory and what things, uh, what you've heard. So, uh, particularly in the New Testament, but also throughout the Hebrew Bible, there are passages and Poems and a sort of uh, maxims that occur within the biblical text that are for the purpose of memorization so that an illiterate person can memorize those things and tell them to other people. We could describe that as a tool of evangelism. The way in which you talk to somebody about what Jesus says, probably something like, wisdom is vindicated by your deeds. Or what we've read, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. You can say that to somebody, you can memorize it and speak about the mighty works of Jesus Christ and that it isn't burdensome to believe and understand that over time Jesus becomes your greatest place of safety and assurance. So applying yourself and memorizing that the things uh, are important. I venture to guess that most of you who've come to church a lot know most of the Eucharistic prayer we say by heart or certain parts of the uh, liturgy that we use every Sunday by heart. It's hard because there's some people who think unless I'm reading it in the book, I can't really be participating, Right? There was a big battle when I was in seminary because the the present prayer book was being created back in the mid-70s. And there was an academic war going on between the liturgists and the biblical scholars. And the biblical scholars said, you need to put the text of the biblical readings in the bulletin every Sunday so that people can follow along. And the liturgist said, no, The liturgy is a living thing and you need to hear the word of God proclaimed and read and make make sense of it in that fashion. The problem has never been resolved and in typical Episcopalian fashion, now in many places we do both. But there is something to commend listening to it as a live performance and to listening to the word read, God's word read to us. So this week, uh, see if you have the opportunity, as Rebecca did, to say, I will, I will go to God.
Don't uh, beat yourself up because of your internal conflicts, because of the good you do, and then, or you want to do, and then you don't do it. And remember that God is in charge when we let go and let God, things do in fact go better. And finally, know that the wisdom of God in the words and works of Jesus, and by extension, our acceptance of this great and powerful truth is not burdensome, but life-giving. Amen.